Hey guys, and welcome to episode 257 of Built on Passion. I'm your host, Matt Delabuono. This week we have on Moose Jaw Mountaineering CEO, Owen Comerford. Moose Jaw Mountaineering is an online and brick and mortar retailer specializing in apparel and gear for skiing, snowboarding, rock climbing, hiking, camping, backcountry stuff, all sorts of stuff, outdoorsy stuff. If you're already familiar with Moose Jaw, chances are it played a solid role in helping you get outdoors. If you haven't, well, let's just say there's hope for you yet. Owen has been with the company for over a decade and got to see it evolve, but more notably, he's helped steer it from being a small company with vibrant energy to a big company with vibrant, slightly more enthusiastic energy. The key thing with this is that he was able to grow this company without sacrificing the spirit of love for all things outdoors within it. Not only have they developed as a company and kept a fantastic brand culture, but they also aren't afraid to experiment with interesting ways to give customers a better experience. Moostraw is more than just creating efficient systems, more than just numbers. It's giving people a chance to interact with gear in new ways, connect with people who not only can help them find exactly what they're looking for and what would serve them best, but also help excite them to use the gear and actually get out there. In this episode of Built on Passion, Owen Comerford shares how to balance growth as a company without sacrificing culture and identity, his approach for balancing online and in-person sales, and Moostraw's plans to make getting outside a more enjoyable, and more importantly, a more inclusive experience. With that, let's just get right into it. Owen, thanks a ton for joining me today. Sure, Matt. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I guess the easy one to start off, who are you and what do you do? I am Owen Comerford and I am the CEO of Moose Jaw. Awesome. And for at this point, I feel like it'd be hard pressed to say that there are people out there who haven't heard of Moose Jaw or aren't familiar, but for the listeners who might not be familiar, what is Moose Jaw Mountaineering? Sure. Actually, there are surprisingly a lot of people that don't know who Moose Jaw is. And, you know, we, we want to remedy that. But uh, <laughs> yes, Moose we are one of the, the leading retailers of outdoor gear and apparel. In the, and, we, you know, we've been around since, gosh, since 1992. Started as a single store in suburban Detroit. And we've grown, especially online. I want really one of the top online players over the last three years. It's interesting. I was surprised to find out that you guys started in Detroit. I know about you living in the Northeast. And I thought that that's where you guys were based. I, I don't know how that got into my mind. I think it's just, it's been, that's why it's so familiar. It's like, oh, okay, Moostra, I'm, I, I know you, but it's kind of a, for me, it was interesting to find that out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people, uh, most people definitely don't think of us as a Detroit-based company. You know, Detroit is not the first place on most people's list when they think of the outdoors. Yeah. You know, we don't have a whole lot of fortunes out here. You know, we actually started out really more in the climbing. Climbing backpacking was kind of our core. So, you know, there isn't really any rock climbing in Detroit. We've got some great gyms. But no, it, this was where our, our founder went to the University of Michigan. And this is where he grew up. So, so this is where we started. It's arguably more important. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're into the outdoors, you may end up in somewhere else and you'll still want to get out there. People need a way to get the gear. Sure. Yeah. And Michigan, I mean, you know, we're really the Great Lakes state, right? So we're surrounded by water, you know, and just there's so much to do, so many great state parks. We have one national park, Isle Royal, but lots of great things uh, going on. So so what's your background and how did you end up at the helm of Moose Jaw? I think there were two other founders who initially got it started and you kind of took the reins. Yeah, well, correct. So actually, I've been with Moose Jaw since 20. 
uh, since, well, 2008. Mm-hmm. So it, it'll be, what'll that be? 14 years? Wow. No, 13 years this November. So it's been a while. But obviously, you know, the founders really grew it quite a bit. It was really Robert Wolf was the original founder, and then his brother Jeffrey joined shortly thereafter, and then actually his sister Julie. Julie's still with us and is one of our senior buyers, but Robert and Jeffrey really moved on shortly after they sold the majority to a private equity firm. So that was in, they sold in 2007, and then really it was 2008 that the private equity firm started to bring in some, some different management. But, you know, Robert and I still talk a lot. He's a great guy. He's a serial entrepreneur, so he's been on to do other things. But uh, he's still involved with the brand. He was on the board for a long time, uh, really up until we sold to, to Walmart, actually, a number of years ago. So, but yeah, no, actually, I came out, really, my background is more e-commerce. Well, if you go way back, my original background was in mechanical engineering. Got out of school, realized that I just didn't want to do that. I got into consulting and then really I've been in e-commerce since the late 90s. So it's been since the beginning, ran a company, sold a company. And then, you know, coming off of that, was looking for, for my next thing. And I was actually, it was living in Detroit and Lustro was really one of the few big, bigger e-commerce players in the area. So it worked out really well. They needed a head of, of marketing and e-commerce. And so I was the guy. And then I was in that role for a few years, and then I took on the CEO role in 2012. That's and which makes sense. I mean, especially for the way that sales and you know people are buying it, that seems to be just the way things are going. I'm noticing a theme of systems too. I mean, or this this like uh, when you go from mechanical engineering, you have to know a system really well. E-commerce, same thing. It's you it, know, uh, like a, it is. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, that's really why I love e-commerce. Is it's it's so numbers driven. Right. And obviously, if you're in engineering, you're, you're a math person. And it, it is. I mean, the, if there's one issue with e-commerce, there's too much data. Right. I mean, you could just bury yourself in all of the analytics and site analytics and customer analytics, response rates. And, you know, it goes on and on. But, you know, it's all about data. Right. And just understanding how best to serve the customer, what they want and how to get it to them in the right way. From when you started to where... Moostra is now, there's no doubt that the game has changed to some degree with social media platforms, how they develop. Has there been a lot of growing pains or has it been a pretty, I guess, a gentle nudge here and there to stay on top of all the different changes with how e-commerce works? Yeah, there's definitely been certainly changes along the way. Actually, when I joined Moostra, um, they had just launched a new e-commerce platform and, and it was a bit of a cluster, to be honest. It wasn't in great shape. Well, actually, it was, yeah. So new e-commerce platform that barely worked. Our biggest brand, the North Face, had just gone direct. You know, we used to get all this free traffic from them, not so much anymore after that. And, you know, it was the stock market crash of 08. So that was a crazy time to join a company, but learned a lot. I mean, that was definitely sort of a fire hose moment, but I, I just, I had a great time and, you know, came into a really great team of people. Which has really been, I think, what's what's kept me at Mooster all these years is just, yeah, I love the people I work with, just passionate about what they do, passionate about the outdoors, but just and passionate about having fun. You know, I mean, one of our vision is to be, you know, the, the most fun outdoor retailer on the planet, and so we hire for that, right? We hire for people who don't take themselves too seriously, who work hard certainly, but understand that you know it's a job, and we all need to get along and you know, have fun to make it worth doing. So, you yeah, know, it, it's been great. But along the way, yeah, I mean, you know, I think we've looked to stay, I would say, at the 
some would say the bleeding edge of e-commerce. And so we, we've had, you know, we've had some hits and misses, but no regrets, right? It's always been, hey, let's fail fast. Let's try this thing. You know, we, we did an AR app in 2011. So that's, you know, 10 years ago now we were, we were, we were dabbling with AR. That was our X-ray app. I don't know if you ever heard of that, but we no, we, yeah, yeah. So what it was was that we, we had a basically you get our catalog right, and then you open the catalog and, it, and it's people in outerwear. But if you use the app and looked at the picture through the app, it would actually it, it was an X-ray app, so it would look through the clothing and you'd see the models in their underwear. Yeah, so it was the X-ray app, so it was huge. It had like millions of downloads. In fact, we only printed about two hundred thousand catalogs, but we had like. 3 million downloads or something crazy. And it was just a hit, you know, all over the place. I think, I think it just, it appealed to that, you know, boyhood x-ray specs in the back of the comic kind of thing. Oh yeah. So, it, but it, that, that was really fun. Nothing to do with really selling, you know, outdoor gear and apparel, but that's kind of what we do. So we've done that. We've done VR. We were one of the first ever e-commerce players to use responsive web design. So it was actually, we actually did it before it was even a thing. So we launched in, that would have been in mid 2011, we used a responsive web design to create our backend system. And it was more just us solving a problem versus us saying, oh, here's this new thing, let's, let's implement it. We just said, hey, could we do this? Could we sense the, you know, what, what type of device it is and actually change the CSS file so that it, it renders differently? And our guys were like, yeah, I guess yeah, we could do that. That sounds like it, that would be fun. And so we did it. And then, you know, six months later, we were at internet retailer talking about, oh, yeah, we did this thing. And it's kind of cool. All of that coming together is, I mean, I feel like that is, you're a little bit um, first in line for the future of what, I guess, a shopping experience is like. Even in getting back to even just the X-Ray app to actually kind of coincides with your catalog. Even hearing something like that would be enough for me to say, I got to try this. And then I guess you bring people onto your platform and you have this like fun interactive thing. I think there's something really special about being able to explore things like that to make people browsing and searching for the right thing way easier when you don't have to necessarily worry about creating the product. You just have to find a way to connect a person to exactly what they're looking for. I would say one of the things that has maybe separated Moose Jaw from some others is, you know, a lot of outdoor retailers, they sell brands, right? So really they're, if you want to say an intermediary between the customer and the brand, whether it be a North Face or an Arcturx or what have you, you know, Moose Jaw, we, we always saw ourselves as the brand, right? And we're a retailer, we have a, a message, we have a voice, and we're also selling these other brands to you too, right? Which sometimes leads to some conflict because brands want you to tell their story, but we say, well, okay, we'll tell your story, but we're only going to tell it in our way, in our voice, right? We're not just going to take whatever your you know, verbatim points about the new XYZ jacket is and just regurgitate it the same way that any other retailer would. We've got to add what we call the Moose Madness to it. Otherwise, it isn't authentically us, right? So, so I, I think that's been a bit of a difference in the whole process. And it's a super important thing too. I mean, it's for one, you take accountability on your own shoulders and you can actually cultivate your own community that knows what you guys are about, what kind of brands you work with, things like that. It almost makes it easier to, I guess, navigate a world where there's constantly like new products coming out, different options. It can get kind of overwhelming if you, whether you're new to a sport or you've been around for a while, 
just having a guiding hand to help articulate what a brand is trying to put out there is super helpful. How have you cultivated your community? Was it really, was it based off of the trust of your customers or did you do any kind of special different things adding into the customer experience to cultivate that community? Well, really in terms of the, the brand and the brand voice, it came from our founder, right? So Robert, you know, is just a very, you know, kind of fun guy. And, you know, when they first opened that first brick and mortar retail store, I mean, they would just sit there and they'd throw the Frisbee around, they'd play hacky sack, they'd do whatever. And, you know, if a customer happened to come by, they would just involve them in whatever the heck they were doing. And so it wasn't this sort of master plan, like, oh, let's figure out what would be an engaging voice and let's use that voice and da da da. It was more like, hey, this is who we are. And then, you know, I think one of the things I'm, I'm most proud of is that as Robert and Jeffrey exited the business, I realized that was one of our core assets. So we really tried to sort of codify, like, what is Moose Jaw, right? Because you know, it's easy when the founder's still there and, and they're the gatekeeper and they're, you know, he was still writing copy, he was still doing his thing. So we actually came up with a set of, of values that were really so unique to Moose Jaw it was, you know, be notable was one, right? So do things that, you know, people will tell 10 friends about, you know, be engagingly engaged. So actually, you know, have a dialogue with your customers. Don't just be on broadcast, right? All the time and make customers love us. So not just like us, but make them love us. And then the last one was only do cool stuff. So only do stuff that we're proud of, only sell stuff that we ourselves would buy, right? And so we did these things and it really worked, you know, and it wasn't just like it printed on, on a piece of paper and, you know, given out as a something to stick on your desk or on your wall, but it really became embedded in the company so much so that, you know, I think the way you know if your value statements work is if the employees throw them back in your face at some point and say, well, hold on a second. You said, you know, we should only do what's cool. Why are we selling this brand? Is that cool? Right. And you're like, well, okay. Okay. You have a point there. Right. Well, I guess maybe we shouldn't sell that brand. Or, you know, you said that we, you know, we said we're, we're going to do what's notable. What's notable about this campaign? It's basically just warmed over, you know, whatever somebody else just did. So that's, I think that's really worked well in terms of creating that and then, and then being authentic about it. Right. And, you know, so it isn't like, in terms of creating this community with the way you asked this question, it wasn't so much about, you know, how do we create a community? It was more, how do we create a brand that people will, will like, right? And sometimes not like, right? Because if you try to create a brand that everyone likes, then probably no one's going to love it, right? You, you'll have people like, yeah, it's, yeah, you know, it's like, you know, like whatever, like, like a major sporting goods chain, like, you know, yeah, they're fine. I'm not, that's not like, oh, I love that sporting goods chain. They're amazing. It's like, no, they're, yeah, if I need a pair of Nikes, yeah, that's a cool spot, right? But, you know, you know, as opposed to being the brand where people will actually, you know, buy your T-shirt and wear the logo and say, you know, hey, or they'll see somebody else wearing a Moose T-shirt and like give them a thumbs up or a high five or whatever. Yeah, so that's really what you're looking for. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, literally what you said, that's what I do. When I see Moose I'm like, hey, I know this isn't exactly everywhere. I realized that it's a little bit more niche, but it's definitely super recognizable because I have that own personal attachment and connection be like, Oh, I got my first climbing shoes here. Something like that. So with regard to the way how I guess people are, you know, looking for gear browsing, 
how do you navigate balancing, I guess, an ecosystem where people are getting more into online sales and might be showing up to retail locations a little bit less? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We've certainly our growth has been mainly online. We, we've opened it, you know, some stores over the years, but it's pretty much been mainly online. And the stores, though, they're a key part of what we do, and it's probably the the most moostral experience you can have is being in our stores. And then, you know, last year we obviously, you know, we had to close our stores for a while, and it was really interesting. So. In talking with our retailers, we said, well, you know, how do we keep our people busy? We don't want to furlough people. We don't want to go down that road, right? So what are we going to do? And we said, well, you know what? We have this amazing asset, right? All these people in our stores that know the product better than anybody, right? They're touching it they're, you know, every day. They're talking to customers all the time. Let's actually unlock that for our online customers. Because, yes, we have customer service folks, and they're amazing. They're called, we call them customer advocates, but, you know, they're on the phone, right? They, they don't get to touch the product as much, right? They don't, you know, get to get out quite as much maybe or, you know, have long conversations about trips that our folks in the stores do. So we said, okay, let's do this. Let's take our best, you know, store associates and we're going to create a program called Gear Wizards. And these Gear Wizards, basically, if somebody asks a question about an, placing a new order or a question about a product, we're going to route them to our Gear Wizards versus to our customer associates because they're more customer advocates, because they're more about where's my product, you know, order stuff, right? And it's been amazing. I mean, just the customer feedback is just off the charts. We have like a net promoter score of 87, right? Just because you know, people and people will get on a call with, with some of our folks and it might be five minutes, it might be 55 minutes, but you know, no one, there's no clock running. It's just, hey, what can we do to help? And just the amount of feedback that we get from folks is, is just, it's amazing about the program. So that's key is, is leveraging those two pieces and, and really being seamless across the channel. We were one of the very early stores to do ship from store. We've been doing ship from store really since I've been in Moose Jaw, so, you know, over 12 years. So that helps too, right? Because we can always bring new product in and some of it's going to go out the front door with the customer, some of it's going to go out the back door on a FedEx truck but it leverages that inventory and keeps more inventory fresh and new in store. You know, whether if you want to buy online, return in store, you know, the, the whole thing, it just has to be seamless across the whole, whole, the whole channel. But I mean, I do think brick and mortar though is here to stay. You just have to figure out a way to make it special and then also to leverage it. So if we can leverage those folks, you know, on the sales floor to help with, with the online piece, then that allows us to keep those stores fully open and fully staffed. I think you're totally right, especially, I mean, pretty much across the board in terms of, I guess, using, you know, the resources available and going above and beyond with customer service aspect of it. Retail staying, being here to stay, I fully agree with that too. I think that what you've created is not just a more helpful way to understand what you're looking for, but it's an experience. and. I think that if there's one, my theory of what COVID has shown us is that when people go out into the world, they really are looking for the social interaction, the experience. You're talking about gear. That's super technical pieces of equipment that you're going to be using for something specific. You know, your needs are different than someone else's. So having that even as a sounding board to say, hey, I've been thinking about this. What do you think about this? That's invaluable. I feel like that's, you know. Right. I mean, getting fitted for a pack 
climbing shoes. I mean, you, you know, climbing shoes, you, you, you can't have them that are, eh, they kind of fit. No, they have to really actually fit. And, and it isn't just, oh, you know, I'm a size 10 and a half in brand X, then I'll be a size 10 and a half in every other brand. No, not really. It's really about your foot. And even different styles within the same brand are going to fit differently. So there's a lot to it. I think one of the concerns that I have for our industry is the specialty, you know, the mom and pops, the smaller specialties, you know, what's happening there because they really are a backbone of the industry and introduce so many people to the outdoors that, you know, if that goes away, that's a challenge, not just to those individual retailers, but to, I think to the industry in general. How do you see that playing out? Do you have any kind of insight on, you know, the mom and pops? I've thought about that too. I know that even how you market yourself, how you reach an audience, it seems to be coming harder and harder, more pay to play, which might box out smaller brands. Is there anything that you think might make sense to help support them? I think one of the big things is really understanding what the role of those smaller specialty stores is and leveraging that as a brand, right? And, you know, it's less about selling into those stores and saying, okay, hey, I want you to stock X, Y, and Z or what have you. It's more about saying, hey, you know, you're my ambassador for the brand in this local market, right? And so, you know, I want a customer to be able to come in and say, hey, you know, I, I want to pack and I don't need you to stock all the packs, right? I need you to have a representative sample, right? Give great customer service, great advice, great, great, you know, fitting of the pack, let's say. But then, you know, I'll ship it for you. I, the brand, you know, you tell me what you want, you know, and, and if you have it in stock for that person, great. If not, I'll ship it, you know, at the same cost as you would have bought it from me if you were stocking it. And it's more of a... I don't want to say showroom, but it's more of a, an approach to where you can give that small store the full endless aisle of options for that brand in a way that works economically for both. And then, you know, equally, um, like I, there are some brands that are even going above and beyond to where they're saying, hey, not only are we going to do that, but we're going to look at how our overall D2C sales. So let's say that same brand says, we're going to look at how we're doing in, in your market relative to other markets. and we're actually going to give you a cut, right, of our D2C sales based upon what, how you develop that market for us because they know that there's a synergy there. So I think there's a little bit of that somehow in here is really understanding what their role is and the key role that they play and how you let them do that. And so, you know, so for that store, well, absolutely, they need to have a certain amount of stock to be able to show the customer and they need to have shown that that you know they and their you know and their, the people on the floor really know your product as a brand and that they've passed whatever the tests are to be really experts. But once they get that, then in my mind, okay, it's the product is getting the product to the customer is doesn't have to be what's in the store. It can be this whole you know back end system where we can get it to them you know, next day, right? It honestly, hearing you describe this, it makes way more sense for even just the future again. I know I mentioned this a couple of times, but how online sales are becoming more prevalent. Brick and mortar won't go away. I'm like that where I, I need to go and actually physically interact with the product before I, I dive in. Having some kind of functional showroom, I feel like is the perfect happy medium where you could even keep that. I mean, for in the context of Moose Jaw, you guys are kind of, I mean, in playing with gear, you know, interacting with what you have in the store, you don't lose that experience of people immersed in what they're doing and actually enjoying it. In terms of, for in the context of Moose Jaw, what 
kind of marketing obstacles have you faced, especially with how things have changed in the past couple of years and how have you gotten past them? You know, I think the challenge is that it is getting more expensive to really have your voice heard online, right? You know, we're fortunate in that we, we already had a brand, we already had an audience, but, you know, getting new customers, it gets more expensive, right? You know, I think back on, you know, the early days with social to where you kind of, you know, built your brand and you built your audience. And as you built your audience, then you could promote to that audience. So it was great. Now it's pretty much 100% pay to play. Organic is kind of goes nowhere unless you just happen to hit that right, you know, viral moment, but you really can't plan for that, right? And the more you try to design something viral, the, the less authentic it is, right? So it is challenging to kind of cut through the clutter, it can be challenging for, for anybody, even around our size. So it comes down to marketing efficiency, right? I mean, we have a we have a limited marketing dollar and, you know, what is the best place to spend that money? And, you know, how do you make sure you're investing a little bit in the top of the funnel as well as in the bottom of the funnel? But, you know, we've spent a lot of time on things like, not to get too much in the weeds here, but on multi-touch attribution, which is, you know, where you're, because historically with a lot of analytics, you tend to just look at, you know, what was the last click that I got? Or, you know, the, you know so oh, I, this person came from an affiliate site, let's say. And you go, oh, okay, that's cool. So, so we need to keep investing in that affiliate site. Well, turns out that that same person actually found us through, you know, something totally different you know, searched on this thing, went through natural, went through a paid thing, and then eventually went through affiliate just because maybe they had a coupon code for us, right? So one of the challenges I think over the years has been really understanding all of those little touches along the way and how they contribute to the total to make sure that we're investing our marketing dollars wisely and not just focusing on maybe the last piece, and not understanding how it all started at the beginning. Selling to Walmart was a huge deal for you guys. I mean, it definitely helped increase it must have helped increase your footprint and give you a little bit more backbone to get your name out there do you think that kind of set you up so that you were able to keep the core of what moostra was without compromising saying okay we got to do things a little bit differently just so we can focus on the sales and the number do you feel like that gave you i guess a better runway to stay true and stay right on the level yeah absolutely it's certainly as a totally independent company, obviously you have to be extremely bottom line focused and really more so than that, even just cash flow focused, right? It's like, okay, you know, we're buying this amount of stuff for the surge in the fourth quarter of the holiday. Okay, now how do we make sure we've got the cash to pay for it when it comes to, right? So we have less of that. Obviously, there's still absolutely a bottom line focus, but you know, we have less concerns about, you know, are we gonna pay people, you know, month to month or whatever. And yeah, just to access to more resources access to, you know, the corporate level, you know, discounts for everything from, you know, IT stuff to, to our shipping to what have you. So, so that's all been a great unlock. And, you know, I think the best thing has been that the leadership of Walmart really understands that what makes Moose so different is our brand. So they haven't messed with that at all, right? Like there's never been a conversation like, hey, Owen, can you run your social media posts past uh, this person before anything goes out? None of that, right? I mean, if that had been part of the whole deal, I would have just walked away. It's like, no, because you, you can't. We, we, we can't be moose jaw and be true to who we are if we're going to get filtered through some sort of you know, corporate mouthpiece. So, no, it's been really good, actually. You know, I think Walmart gets a bit of a bad rap out there from people. And I think that's, you know, there's a lot of misinformation or very dated information about Walmart. I don't blame people for that simply because I would say I was 
just as guilty of that before the deal went down, right? We were actually talking with Jeff. So Mark Laurie, who really was that was headed up Walmart e-commerce for a number of years, he founded Jet beforehand. So we were actually in conversations with Jet before they were acquired by Walmart. Then Mark brought us on board shortly thereafter. But you know, when we heard of the Walmart piece, I'm like, huh, Walmart, that wouldn't have been who I would have thought would buy us, right? Yeah. So then started doing my homework and realized, oh wow, these guys actually they've been working on sustainability since 2009. I mean, you know, this is not like they're, you know, Johnny come lately is here. I mean, they're actually at the forefront of a lot of things, social justice, you know, one of, considered one of the best places to work for, for LGBTQ employees, right? Things that you would never expect potentially if you have this sort of, I guess, dated mindset about what is Walmart, right? So no, it's, it's been great. You know, when I first saw that a couple of years ago, I thought it was also kind of random, like, huh, I wouldn't have guessed that. I guess if Walmart did want to get into any kind of outdoor thing, it would make way more sense and be like, hey, you guys know what you're doing and we don't want to change that because you're doing it well. Let's just team up. And it, this is a little anecdotal, but I have a degree in uh, natural resources, so very environmentally focused. One of my classes was environmental global relations, and my professor loved Walmart, and he would always go off. And this was in Vermont, so there's like he's preaching to like classes who like just didn't get it. But when you think about what it can do, a from you know the economic standpoint, just being able to create a marketplace, get people the things that they desperately need in a place where it may be harder, like less likely to be available. That alone, just it, in terms of creating, I guess, a more connected system, he loved it. And I always thought that that was really interesting. Yeah, and unfortunately it doesn't get a lot of press. So actually I think it was last year that Walmart at our CEO, Doug McMillan came out, we wanted to be become a regenerative company. So not just a net zero, and a lot of net zero companies, basically, they're buying offsets or they're planting trees in India and doing those sorts of things, which are, which are great. But but actually, we said, no, we want to actually be regenerative. We, we, so in terms of you know putting back in, whether that's stewardship of millions and millions of acres, of actually huge portions of the oceans to actually not just not damage the environment, but bring it back. And I think that's really, really impactful. In regards to balancing getting back to to moose draw here in regards to balancing your retail operation versus your e-commerce operation how do you manage that i know we touched a little bit here and there but is it a completely different beast on both sides have you kind of merged it into a, a seamless system what does that look like yeah i wouldn't say it's a completely different beast and you know as you move down the path of, of gear wizards now it becomes more and more blended you know so that retail person they may be you know if they're working in the store, one minute they're they're helping a customer to you know who's walked in the store and they want to plan a trip. The next minute they're on the phone talking to somebody. The next minute they're on a chat with somebody who's online. And the next minute they're answering an email. And then you know the minute after that they're they're shipping a product out from a, for an online customer where they happen to have the product in stock. And you know it's our store in Boulder and the customer is in Denver. You know I mean it's a, it's very intertwined. It means that you know people are busy, right? So you need people who are energetic and who, who want to stay busy. It's very intertwined. And then even as we look at our online sales, so we just did a study actually looking at how our online sales in certain markets where we have stores compared to other similar markets where we don't have stores, right? And what we did was we said, okay, hey, let's look at these markets and let's index 
the percent of our online business that we do in, in this market. So let's say Detroit, where we're from. Let's, inde- let's look at that index versus other similar markets and the percent of households in that market versus the US, right? So let's say, let's take Detroit as an example. So in Detroit, it's doing, let's say about 10% of our online businesses in the Detroit market, okay? But it's only about 5% of the US households are in that market. So the index there is 200, right? So 100 would be same sales, same households. So it's 2X, right, in a market like Detroit. You compare that to a comparable market like Cleveland, you know, Midwestern kind of Rust Belt-ish city, that's about an 80, okay? So you go, oh, something's going on here. These two very similar cities, what's different? Well, in one city where people, absolutely people know who we are in Detroit, we've got, you know, five stores here. So that's a huge difference. Same thing in Boulder, right? In that area, you know, it's a bit different story because similar markets, similar very outdoorsy markets, yeah, they over-index. They, they over-index, you know, in terms of our sales because there are so many people that get outdoors there, but maybe it's like a 150. You look at that market where we have a store, it's like a 270. So again, it's driving our online sales by just having that store in that market because people then know who you are. If they have a return, they can go into the store. You know, it's a game changer. And so as we look to add stores over the coming years, that's how we look at it. It's like, well, you know, where are the markets where we're going to you know, do, you know, do the best? And then, you know, as we roll out Bopus and those other and other things later this year, buy online, pick up the store, then you know, it becomes more important, right? That you have a local store where people can get that product the same day. It's almost like a perfect thing to take that even further. I mean, just to have more retail locations, I, I would imagine you also treat them in some ways as fulfillment centers. So, you know, if they're, if you're out of stock in one thing, it's a little bit easier to, you know, manage inventory. I don't know how the level of autonomy between each store, but I'd imagine there's some level of seamlessness. Yeah, it seems great. Plus with getting in regards to the gear wizards for a gearhead, it's not hard to say, Hey, we want you to just talk about gear and just go into the weeds on it and just do your thing. I mean, that's part of the reason why we started Ready Yeti. It's you can go for hours and talk about just backpacks and you know, never stop. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we have, and we've had people, yeah, we've had calls, literally hour long calls. People are, they're planning a trip and you know, they may have just called because, Hey, I want a backpack. And then it's like, well, okay, cool. We can absolutely help you. Well, what are you doing? Oh, where are you going? Oh, okay, cool. And you may even just talk about, hey, I was, you know, PCT. Sure. Oh, I did that. Well, yeah, what, what, where are you starting? Okay. Have you thought about this? Oh, yeah, cool. And it becomes a whole, a whole deal. It can be a real game changer. When you think about it, no one's really buying a piece of gear just casually. There's always some kind of experience tied to it too. So there, that emotional, you know, you bring that emotional attachment to, oh, I need a tent. I'm not just going to go camping. I want to have an experience in nature and I want that to be great. And having the chance to help someone right. who knows this stuff guide you is like valuable. Absolutely. And, and it gets into the outerwear piece or the clothing piece too. You know, I think there are some brands or some retailers that view the apparel pieces, hey, it's just, it's fashion. You know, it's, eh, it's clothing, right? You know, it's like, we can just do it just like anybody else. And the reality is it's not, right? Because it's one thing if your rain jacket, kind of, you know, you figure out your rain jacket isn't that great as you're running from your car to the office, right? You're like, ah, okay, that kind of sucked a little bit. 
I'm going to throw that thing away or whatever you're going to do or get a new one or return it or, or something. But, you know, finding out that, you know, your rain jacket sucks on day two of a 20 day hike, not great. Right. So it's just, it's a different level of trust and belief in the product. Right. You know, I'm fortunate enough where I can interact with a lot of different products and see the difference between each of them. I still don't think I would pick up a piece of gear without talking to someone else first. It doesn't matter how knowledgeable I am getting a second opinion is always something that I feel like, you know, it's hard to go into something thinking that, you know, everything or you know what to expect. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, obviously reviews are very important there too, for pieces. We certainly see it. The outdoor, as you get more and more technical, right, it becomes more and more of a considered purchase to where, you know, you're probably not going to sell that person on the, the first, like, you know, somebody just doesn't say, uh, you know, backpack, oh, here's this Osprey, cool. Okay, I, I need like, eh, 70 liters. Okay, let me go to Moose Jaw. Eh, 70 liter Osprey, that looks good. Okay, boom, done. That almost never happens, right? It's, I'm thinking about a trip. I'm, you know, I, you know, maybe I like a certain brand, but then which, you know, how big of a pack do I want? You know, and then I do the research. I go out on, you know, different sites, different places, you know, I go on Reddit, I whatever, you know, and figure it out. And so usually it might take five different touch points to actually convert that person ultimately. Right. And so it's so that that's really where where you especially, you know, in our game, we have to figure that out. And like, how do you make sure we're there for that person in every step of the journey? Yeah. And it's an everyone win situation, too. Earlier, you talked about a lot of really cool integrations into the sales experience is there anything i mean kind of in the realm of you know ar you know vr that scope that you are looking to add into the moose jaw experience any specific things that you're working on developing that you would be willing to uh dive into hmm I'm not sure how much I can talk about right now yeah, that's fair too yeah what i would say is that we're looking we're trying to look full life cycle right for product as well as consumers one of the big things that we're focusing on right now is inclusivity in the outdoors you know it's really hit home to me a lot over the years just our industry is not terribly diverse right you know and i would say maybe 10 years ago it was we weren't diverse at all but i think we've made strides certainly in terms of gender diversity within the outdoors but in terms of racial diversity we still have just such a long way to go i mean you know you go to an outdoor industry show and you walk the aisles and it is as white as white can be i mean it really is you know that's like camp hike type trade shows but and then you know don't get me started on snow right i mean it's crazy and so we, we need to change that we need to change that and we need to be a more inclusive industry because you know our this isn't just for sort of like social justice type stuff, which is good and we should do it for that too, but also just, just for survival long-term, right? I mean, this is a, our country is becoming more diverse every day and we need to become more diverse with it. And so, you know, we need to find ways to get people of all shapes, sizes, races, genders, whatever, outdoors and welcome them outdoors. And so, you know, we've been doing a lot. I mean, yes, there's, there's representative representation in the marketing that we do and that's something we've been doing for a number of years but it's also about you know even economic inclusivity right had it's expensive 
to do some of the things we're talking about doing, right? You know, going on a back, getting fully equipped for a week-long backpacking trip, you know, is a lot, right? Even going climbing for the first time in terms of just putting together your rack and shoes and all that stuff, like, whoa, that's some coin. So we're looking at different things. We're looking at, you know, I mean, obviously used is something that, you know, that we're looking to do more of. We do it today, but it's more local. In our local market, we've used gear sales. Um, you know, how do we get that more national? Um, rental, right? Rental is a way to get people outdoors and engaged in the outdoors in an easier way, right? And, and, and step people into it. And then even, you know, looking at, you know, how do we bring product to market that's maybe more, more accessible that gets people into the outdoors? So there's a lot there, but, you know, a lot of work. How do we get more people, you know, people of color working in the outdoor industry, right? I mean, that, that's a challenge. So it's all linked, right? Because the people in the industry, right, tend to be the people who love being outdoors. And so if, you, if you're not filling that funnel, then you're going to have a hard time, you know, filling your jobs too. So, yeah, a lot of work to do there. And it's an interesting thing. I mean, you literally said it where it's not an isolated issue. It's attached to, you know, whether it's socioeconomic or geographic, there's all these different things that you kind of work through. It's an exciting and an empowering thing to take charge, to try to, you know, help push the industry in that direction. And I think that so many brands are so fully on board with, Hey, let's just open our doors it's just a matter of, you know, how do you show people that uh, come check out the outdoors, come do this thing. That's, I guess, the uh, the tricky part. I think we're making progress. Obviously, the events of last year brought it into sharper relief. Quite frankly, it's something we've been working on for a number of years. That just maybe added a little bit of extra fuel to the fire, so to speak, to get us moving down this path. But yeah, we've seen a lot more action, I would say. We've seen more action from the outdoor industry in this regard in the last 12 months than, than I have in the last 12 years. So I think we're, we're moving in the right direction. We just need to move faster and we just need to make sure that we continue, that this isn't just a sort of a, a one-time kind of flash in the pan thing that just fades over time. This is a long-term systemic change that has to happen. It isn't a marketing campaign. It isn't a, a couple of charitable contributions, right? It's, it's actually making systemic change. Yeah, totally. That's fantastic. In regards to, I guess, throughout your career from start to where you are now, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you've made and how have you managed them? You know, I saw that on the list of questions before we started here. I thought, you know what? I don't really focus on mistakes. Good. I think mistakes are are good. You know, a huge believer in fail fast. You know, like a true mistake would be where you, you screwed something up and then didn't learn from it or or kept going down the path long after time when it probably it should have been been shelved. So, yeah, I mean, no, a big believer, just no regrets, you know, just try anything. Like, you know, try the x-ray app. If it doesn't work, oh, well. I mean, we've made mistakes along the way. Like, we've pissed people off. One of the famous ones was, I read this, you know, marketing guy, I read this article about the fact that Obama, in for whichever, this would have been whichever presidential campaign, I'm not sure which, maybe 2012, I think, did really well in fundraising by sending out these really kind of spammy emails, you know, when I go out to dinner was like a subject line, I think, you know, and it was asking people to join for a fundraiser or whatever. But it was all text, you know, kind of, you know, highlighted, you know, bold, underlined links and stuff. So as CEOs tend to do, I send an email to my market. Hey, check out this article. We should do something with this, right? And so 
We did. So I think the subject line was, it worked for Obama. And then, you know, and literally the email was all text and said basically, hey, our CEO wrote this article about the fact that Obama, you know, raised, you know, was really effective with these really spammy emails. So here, we're going to do it. And so here's a, here's a link to our winter clearance sale and da da da. <laughs> so, so we just, we pissed everybody off, right? I mean, we pissed off, we pissed off the Obama haters because, like, how, you know, how dare you even I, bring up his name? Oh my God. Right. And we pissed off the Obama lovers because how dare you say that Obama sent out spammy emails? I mean, it was just like we pissed everybody off. So, you know, we learned from it. It's like, well, okay, don't involve politics. You know, people don't have a sense of humor about that. Yeah. So, but it was funny and it makes for a great podcast story. So, yeah. See, I think that's funny. I'm like right in the middle ground where I'm like, if, if the title line was, it works for Obama, I'm like, oh, that's, huh, that's funny. I could see how easily people would just be like super reactionary over it. And that is something that I'm like terrified of personally for us, where we just like say this, like super, like meant it to be the most innocent manner. Like it's, we, we just want to talk about like fishing or something fun, like it, it, without that. And then people taking it the wrong way in every way on every oh, side. Right. Yeah. And on every side it is. And I think it's unfortunate that we've kind of gotten here a little bit as a society because you do when you make comments, like when I make comments about inclusivity, you set yourself up, right? And so, you know, like, I don't say that the Moose has it figured out. Certainly, I mean, you look at, you know, Moose level of diversity within our company, it's not where it needs to be at all, right? I mean, we're probably face all the same issues that the rest of the industry faces. So, you know, but if you're not willing to sort of step out there and do those things, you know, it's sad, but sometimes people who do want to do you know, make a difference, sometimes sit on their hands a little bit because they're afraid of getting shouted down, which is really not a great place to be for our society right now because we, we kind of need to, I think, come together. We got a lot of stuff, whether it's climate change, whether it's social justice, you know, where, yeah, I mean, people need to, I think we all need to maybe, not all of us, but some of us need to maybe be a little bit more empathetic and maybe consider where people are coming from rather than just, you know, jumping down their throat. Yeah, being emotional, overly emotional, and quick to jump to attack or defend right. dangerous territory. Yeah, um, it is. I'm fully with you. On a brighter note, what advice would you give to someone who wanted to start a business? I think the biggest thing is, first of all, you got to be willing to work hard, right? If you're not willing to really put everything into it, don't even start because it will take everything or you'll be left with nothing, right? I mean, that's literally, if you're starting a business, that's kind of what, what you're facing. And the other thing is it's all about the people, right? I mean, you surround yourself with good people. A mediocre idea, well executed, will always be a great idea, poorly executed, right? Every time. And so, and the other thing about having good people around you is, you know, they're going to help you to mold your idea, right? I mean, you may think you have this, I've got the next great whatever or the next great retail concept or outdoor product or whatever, but you know, it's through trial by fire and working with other people and bouncing it off of other folks and being willing to adapt and change and pivot a little bit, you know, that's where the magic happens. Right. And so you have to be able to work hard, bring in other people who are also willing to work hard, who share your passion for what you're trying to do and go for it. Right. But if ultimately, if you're thinking, Hey, this would be cool. And yeah, I can work like 40 hours a week and, you know, and it kind of maybe bootstrap this thing along. 
it's probably not going to work. And if it is, it's going to take forever. Ever. Exactly. Forever. Yeah. We just did the Moose to Outdoor Accelerator. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but we ran this program with, we partnered with the Ice Lab, which is in Gunnison, Colorado, part of the West Colorado University or on the campus of Westwood Colorado University. And basically, we, we offered it an eight-week program for new entrepreneurs looking to hopefully drive some more diversity, bring some more diverse founders into the industry. Had over 100 applicants. We had our customers vote on our top 10 finalists. We had 10,000 votes, picked four people, and we just went through that process. Ended up, we finished about two weeks ago. But that, what a great experience, right? In terms of bringing these, all these founders together, going through that process. And I think to a person, they would say that they came out of that just so much better prepared to go after these new businesses. But part of it, right, a lot of it is not what wasn't just maybe what we brought to the table or what the, the folks at the Ice Lab brought to the table, but actually spending time with other founders, right? And just sharing their knowledge or, hey, I've got this social media company that I work with, they're amazing, or hey, have you tried this kind of SEO thing? Or, hey, this is, you know, I'm using this technology or this, you know, and you know, by working together and meeting good people, that's what it's all about. And, and really not trying to reinvent the wheel and, you know, spend the time on the stuff that differentiates you, right? Like, you know, you shouldn't be working. Don't worry about, you know, HR and payroll and all that other stuff, right? There are services out there that will do all that stuff, right? Figure out the piece that sets you apart, put all your time into that, and then either hire somebody or outsource all the rest of it. You subtly touched on it a couple of times, but you know, do what you care about, like focus on what you like. And if you do that, you will do it well because you'll care enough to make sure that you are doing it to the best of your ability. It's going to be a lot of work. You've got to be passionate about it. Right. And if it's just like, Hey, I've got this great idea. Well, okay. Maybe it's a great idea. I hope it's a great idea. But if it's just like, Hey, I've got this great idea and it's going to make me lots of money. Yeah. And, you know, maybe, but I mean, that can't just, that can't be the only reason, right? At the end of the day. I mean, yeah, I get it. I mean, we would all like to be, be financially comfortable, but you've got to be driven by more than that in my mind. When it gets hard and you're not making that money, that's, I feel like it will be quick to be like, you know what? Nah, I'm, I'm, I'm out. <laughs> yeah. Right. I could be making XK a year doing XYZ or whatever I was doing before I did this. Right. I mean, if that's the only reason you're doing it, it's like, but you know, if you want to build something, if you want to, you know, bring people along, if you want, if you see a bigger purpose, that really helps get through. I think the tough times when, when maybe you aren't making all the time. And and then usually, you're, you know, you're going to have to bring other, whether you have to bring in investors or other people onto the team, you've got to be able to sell it, right? And the best way to sell it is if you're passionate about yourself. Yeah. It seemed like you positioned yourself where you kind of had, I mean, you're, you're working, you know, you're, you said, you said yourself, you're a numbers guy and you like building the systems. You love the outdoors. It seems like you basically positioned that for yourself where you are touching on so many things that you love on something that you can really get behind, which is really cool. It's cool to see. It's cool to, you know, see that there's that level of buy-in and passion. I mean, built on passion. That's why, that's why we called it that. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, as I say, I mean, it's one of the reasons why, you know, in this day and age, right, to be a CEO and in a company for, you know, nine years is pretty rare, right? I mean, people, you jump ship, you move around. I mean, you know, if you really want to get ahead, do this, do that, you know, leverage this thing into the next thing. And to me, 
I ask myself, why, right? Why, why, you know, what is the next thing over the next hill that's, you know, going to be better than, I mean, I love the outdoors, love going camping, although got totally rained out last weekend, but that, or two weekends ago, but that's a different story. But, and I love the people I work with. So why, you know, why chase the almighty dollar? It's, it's not, that's not what it's all about. Yeah. There's a point where it's just not worth it. Cause you're living, you are, I mean, not to like throw out cliches, but you are living your best life in being surrounded by all the things that you would be looking for. Right. Exactly. Without having to sacrifice. That's great. Lastly, I know you definitely touched base on it, maybe even just now, but what is the best part about running Moose Jaw? Well, it's definitely good to be the boss. I would have to say <laughs> <laughs> in the grand scheme. Now I'm not really the boss anymore. Right. Cause I've got, you know, within the Walmart world, then you're never the boss. Right? Yeah. Truly. Right. I mean, you know, even before Walmart, I had a private equity firm that, you know, that I reported to, but ultimately though, being able to set the direction for a company and see the results of that and see it grow is amazing. And then just to see the people within the company grow, we have a wall at Moose Jaw where when you hit 12 years, you get a portrait. And so, but it's not just a regular portrait. This is, it's your face, but we'll usually do it on a different kind of a body. Like an admiral uh, or like something super. Yes, oh, exactly. That. So, yeah. So we've, you know, like we've had, you know, Roman emperors. We've had uh, well, Disney princesses actually was one. And then people get to choose their own. We don't just say, hey, you're a Disney princess. And so it's just, it's just great to see just all of those folks over the years that have grown with Moose Jaw. A lot of people now in, in relatively senior roles of Moose Jaw actually started, you know, in the warehouse. 12 years ago or in customer service. So, so no, that's the great part is being able to see really the fruits of your labor and work with great people. I mean, that it all comes down to the people at the end of the day. You said it. Oh, and thank you so much for coming on. For anyone who wants to find out more about Moostraw, maybe pick up some gear, see what's going on. Where's the best place for them to head? That would be moostraw.com. Awesome. Oh, and thanks again. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Hey, Ready Eddie podcast listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, then I would be incredibly appreciative if you could log on to iTunes and leave us a quick review. This really helps us get noticed by other podcast listeners like yourself. And if you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, then please share it along. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Ready Eddie podcast. I'll catch you next week.